0: Well, according to the uh, official calendar of the church, we have just come through the season of Advent that culminated in the celebration of Christ's birth at Christmas. It was great, wasn't it? We, according to the official calendar of Weight Watchers, we have now entered the season of New Year's Resolutions culminating in an annual surge of new gym memberships. <laughs> Tis the season, as they say, to pick up my old guitar and, and start playing it again. Or maybe it's this year I'm going to read through the Bible in 365 days or however far I get. Or maybe, you know, it's just to... Learn a, a new hobby. BASE jumping comes to mind. <laughs> or maybe how about pickleball? It'd be great. We'd love to have you come. One of the things that I always want to try to do every year is I try to I want to try to understand British comedy. Here's one, though. This year, I want to cultivate a vibrant new prayer life. I want, to, I want to pray this year like I've never prayed before. And men and women, as a nation, in 2024, we are going to need it. We are going to need it. You know, prayer is one of those things that we give a lot of lip service to. We preach a lot of sermons on it, and here we are again. But we have such difficulty staying consistently at it. This is the year, I pray, that um, we would lean into the Almighty more easily when times are good. And we would run to the Father more quickly when times are bad. Now, mind you, I'm not here to beat us up this morning because I don't think there's a person in this room, including self myself, that believes that we pray enough. But guess what? Mother Teresa didn't believe she prayed enough. Go figure. So if you think you don't, you're in good company. No, my goal for us is to simply pray more this year to make it a priority. And so the question becomes, why do we have such trouble with being consistent at it? I know, I know, I fall asleep too. (laughs) But how do we... I, I think there's lots of reasons, but part of it may just be we don't know how. How do I do this? Because how we pray and why we pray is as important as what we pray for. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage that Jesus is going to show us how. You see, prayer is a portal into eternity. It is where heaven and earth intersect. It is where the finite touches the infinite, where the the sovereign Lord of the universe, the God of all creation, the Holy of Holies, welcomes flaky, shaky, sinful human beings into a heartfelt communion. I hope you're interested in that. Because Jesus is going to show us how. And we're going to look at it in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, uh, paper Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to open it there. If your Bible is on your phone, turn down the NFL game and turn it over to your Bible app. Seahawks aren't playing until this afternoon anyway. Okay? Because Jesus is going to reveal to us this morning four principles which I believe will lead us to a vibrant prayer life if we would practice them, if we would put it into practice. And so uh, the first of those principles we find in verses five to six of Matthew chapter six, which is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And let's read that together. But before we do, we better pray. Father, we come to you today with hearts fully aware of our inadequacy. And we, we long to know you more deeply. We long to, we long to long to pray more faithfully. And so I pray you would help us with that today, that you would open our hearts and change them this morning by your spirit. In Jesus name I pray, amen. So, the context of what we're going to talk about this morning, as I said, is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is addressing his disciples, his band of disciples, but there's a large group listening in as he's teaching them. And he's teaching them on the three disciplines that every pious Jew of that day practiced regularly. Giving, fasting, and prayer. Okay? And we're going to be focusing on that final one, that aspect of prayer And prayer was important to the Jews. The Pharisees were commanded and practiced praying three times a day. At nine in the morning, at noon, and at three in the afternoon. But what had begun as a a good thing had degenerated by Jesus' time, as good things often do. In such a way that for some and many of the Pharisees, this was just an opportunity to parade their piety before people. To let them know how spiritual they were. And this is where he, we pick up the, the story or the text in verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, when you pray, go to your room, shut the door and pray to the Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He will reward you. Principle number one is really simple. Don't pray to impress people. We don't pray to impress people. The practice of prayer begins by praying in private. Now this is not saying we shouldn't have public prayers. But what he's encouraging us to do is to pray in private first. Now, why would why would he say that? Because it's a reminder that the audience that we pray to is one. That is who we're talking to. Everybody else is listening in. And there are some conversations he's saying to us, they need to be in, in private. Some conversations need to be in private. There are some places in life when we need to pour out our hearts and nobody else listens. Safe places where we can unpack our ugliest stuff. And believe me, we all have ugly stuff. We can unpack it. We can unpack feelings that we would be, that we'd be fearful of being rejected if somebody heard me say what I'm really like. Or, on the other hand, to have the temptation to try to impress them with how spiritual I really am, or I'm really not. He uses the word, these hypocrites. And by the way, we are 100% hypocrites. We all are. We all have a tendency to want to project that we are more spiritual than we actually are. So let's get real. The, I, the word comes from the theater. They would wear masks in these theaters that projected a character, that projected a persona, but it was not the persona behind the mask. That's what we, when you talk about putting on the mask, that's what we're talking about. That's hypocrisy, to, to pretend that we are something that we are not. In prayer, what he's reminding us is that God is the focus. He is the center don't pray to impress people. Pray to be heard by God. And that's what he continues in verses 7 and 8. He says, And when you pray, again, do not heap empty words and phrases as the Gentiles do. So notice, he says, Don't pray like the Pharisees and don't pray like the Gentiles. Here's how the Gentiles pray they heap empty words. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask. He knows already what you need. Principle number two. Don't pray to impress God. Don't pray to impress God. Prayer is a conversation. It is not an incantation. It is not a mantra that if I just say it in the right way, you know, people will say, well, you didn't say it in Jesus' name at the end, so he didn't hear it. No, no, that's not the point. We pray to the Father. We pray not to impress people, but we pray to express our heart to God. D.L. Moody, the great preacher of the last century, early last century and late 19th century, said, in our prayers, we talk to God. In our Bible study, God talks to us. We better let God do most of the talking. He also said, a man who prays much in private will make short prayers in public. Pretty good advice. It is the place where we re- we have to come to realize that a stumbling, frustrated, confused—I don't even know what to pray—prayer reaches the ears of God before some eloquent soliloquy that's got all the words right and they say it just in the right order and just in the right tone of voice. Read through the Psalms: Psalm six, Psalm ten, Psalm fifty-one. These are prayers that are raw and angry. They are crying out, Lord, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? Or they're pouring out their junk. God, I have sinned before before you. These are the kind of prayers that God delights to hear, believe it or not. Even if you're angry at God, and I know even as I sit here this morning, some of you, some of us are angry at God because of where things have gone in our life. I got let you in on a secret. He knows. And it's okay. He's big enough to handle it. Because what you're doing is you're opening your heart to him doesn't matter how many times you say thee and thou and all the King James junk. Come to him with an open heart. Don't try to impress him. Pray to express your heart, not to impress your will. Or somehow if I put it in the right way, it'll bend his will to mine. Now notice, these first two principles are how not to pray. You notice that? Don't pray like this. Pretty, pretty direct. Don't pray to impress people. Don't pray to impress God. Okay, so once we understand that, now we're ready to pray. Now we're ready to pray. And the words that follow are so familiar, sometimes we don't even hear what we're saying when we say them. I don't know when you learn to, to pray this prayer that we're going to talk about this morning, I learned as a, a young child. And if you did, you are blessed to have parents who taught it to you. But when I was a boy, I used to race through the, through the, the prayer as fast as I could. Our Father, come. I mean, I was just fast. And I would always close it with, and God bless Mommy, Daddy, Sister, Pumpkin, and Restless. The latter two were not my siblings. They were our cat and our dog. This morning, I want us to slow down and really hear the prayer and think about it and savor it in our mind. You know, don't be like the the two guys that are arguing as they walk into a bar and they're having this discussion and they say, you know, they're they're arguing about who God is and how to pray and all kinds of things. Really kind of an odd conversation, but guys get into strange arguments, don't they, ladies? And the one looks at the guy and says, you don't know what you're talking about. I bet you don't even know the Lord's prayer. And that guy, his buddy, looked at him and said, I sure do. And he reached reached his pocket, pulled out a $20 bill, and he says, okay, go for it. You make it? He says, okay, right now. (laughs) Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. His buddy looks at him kind of disgusted. And then he hands the 20 over to him and says, I didn't think you really knew it. (laughs) There's a lot of ignorance about religious stuff, okay? So this morning, let's savor these words and look at the third principle, and it's found in verses 9 and 10. He says, pray then like this. Get it? This is how you pray? Okay. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as obvious as it sounds, when we pray, We pray to our Father in heaven. We pray by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. It tells us that God is personal. You know, He's not the force, He's personal. I mean, Jesus prayed to His Father you notice that? Even Jesus prayed to his father. And you say, well, yeah, that's obvious. He was his father. He's the son of God. But notice this. Who does he call him? He calls him our father. We have a father in heaven who's so much better than any father could be on earth. He is our father as his children. God is personal. He is our Father. And, and although that sounds, even that sounds rather pedestrian to 21st century Americans in Western culture, of course we pray to our Father in heaven. No, you don't understand. You don't understand. This was a group of Jews that he was pre- preaching to and teaching to that didn't even say the name of God. They were terrified that, that in their conversation or their reading that the name of God would be uttered and that would be blasphemous. That we would that as human beings, we would propose to, to speak with that kind of tone. Every time you see in the Old Testament where it says, Lord, you'll, it really there's, there's three letters, Y-H-W-H. We call it the Tetragrammaton. That's a big theological word but it's it's Y-H-W-H from which we get the word Yahweh. But see, they didn't even put vowels in the text because they're afraid that if somebody reading the text actually said the word, blasphemy. And he says, when you pray, pray our Father, in heaven. In, Jesus, in Mark chapter 14. In Gethsemane. Four, Mark 14.36. In Gethsemane. Jesus is praying to the Father. And he's not in a real great place. And he cries out. Abba Father. <laughs> if there's any other way this can, can work out. This is the Benedict translation. If there's any other way this can work out, I'm I'm up for that. But nonetheless, your will, not mine. He says, Abba, Father, with a term of endearment and affection, a tenderness. Paul would pick up on this in Galatians 4, verse 16, and Romans 8, chapter 15, and he says, as sons and daughters, we cry out, Abba, Father. It's a word that a young child would say to their dad. Who would crawl up in their lap, and he would wrap his arms around them, and they would call him Abba, Papa, Daddy That exp- reveals the expression of how the, the, our relationship with God now is rooted deeply in a father's love for his children. And it also reveals the access by which we can approach God. We can come to Him and what, however we are, whatever we're feeling, and we can come into his presence and say, Abba, I need you. I'm so confused. I'm so angry. Or I'm so grateful. He is personally approachable. And yet, notice what the text also says Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is not only Abba who is approachable, but he is holy. He is absolutely unique, set apart. There's no one like him. He is absolutely morally pure. He is, it dwells in unapproachable light. And so, as, as God's children, we have this unique sort of tension that we got to live with that God is not only Papa, but He's also God. He's also the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is the Lord over all. He is the King. And he is, His will is the only will that actually matters in life. See, prayer is not trying To bend God's will to mine as so much as it is bending my will to God. It's not getting my will done in heaven, but it is God using me to get his will done on earth. Hallowed be their name, which that's what it means. He is holy, so he is to be treated as holy. He is to be revered. And we live in this tension that's a beautiful tension. He is our father, but he's not our buddy, okay? He's not our buddy. We shouldn't be flip when we we talk about him or refer to him. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. What's he saying? He says, thy kingdom come where? In me first. How does it get out to the world? Well, it comes through me and then how I relate to other people and it comes through you and you and you and you. In other words, God's kingdom is not going to come politically, people. It's going to come through the changing of human hearts that goes out into the world and transforms the world the way the first century church transformed the Roman Empire. Thy kingdom come in me. Now, it's going to come at the end of the age as well but it is here too today. And at every place that Jesus rules, his kingdom is, exists. Okay? Thy kingdom come in me. Thy will be done in me and through me on earth as it already is in the heavenly places. So what does he do here at the beginning of the prayer? So here's the third principle. I almost missed it. Pray to the Father to exalt Him personally. When you pray, pray to the Father to exalt Him personally. What are we doing when we pray that prayer? We are aligning our heart with His. We are aligning ourselves with Him so that when we come to the place where we're asking God for things, we're more likely, number one, to ask the things that He would ask. That's what it needs to pray in Jesus' name, you know. I'm praying this because I believe Jesus would pray this if he were me, or he were in my situation. Okay, So we are aligning our heart with God's heart so that we would ask for the right things. But not only that, when our heart is aligned, we're ready to hear the answer that he gives when he gives it. And we're more likely to recognize it when it comes could it be that we don't see as many answers to prayer maybe as we might because our hearts aren't aligned with his i know that's true for me okay principle number 4 so don't pray to impress god don't pray to impress or don't pray to impress people don't pray to impress god pray to the father to exalt him Hallowed be thy name. Finally, he comes to the request. Notice this. Three verses on request. It's the shortest part of the prayer. Hmm, is that the shortest part of my prayer? He says, basically, when we align our hearts, then he says, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now the church later added, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That doesn't make that prayer not valuable. It's just sort of a summation of what he's been talking about. I'm praying all of this so that your kingdom will come, and so forth. So he asked for three things. In other words, And so the fourth principle is, is very simply this. Pray in faith for daily needs. Pray in faith for daily needs. If you can provide it for yourself, you probably doesn't require much faith. Pray in faith. And he, and he, and he points to three things. First of all, provision, give us this day our daily bread. Then for pardon, forgive us our debts as we forgive those. And protection, lead us not into temptation. Let's take those one at a time. Provision, give us this day our daily bread. First of all, realize that everything you have, everything I have is a gift from God. Everything that we have is a gift from God. There are no self-made people. Everything we have is a gift. And here he says, give us this day our daily bread. And I think he's talking both literally and figuratively. What we need to survive today. Bread, food, clothing, shelter. All the basic needs that he says, pray for those. But he says, it very, pray for this day. And what he was hearkening back to, I believe, was the, would be the exodus. And the children, the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and there was no food and they were crying out to God and guess what? God gave them manna. This bread that came from heaven and, and every morning they would have to go out and gather up the manna. You know, and they made recipe books of 4,000 ways to serve manna. Golda, we have a manna again? Yeah. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us enough For today, and that's enough. Don't miss that. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a daily exercise. God's desire, whatever he's doing, is to grow your faith that you trust him more tomorrow than you trust him today. He's trying to grow us to trust him more and more. So a prayer to win the Powerball is probably not appropriate. Okay. If you are praying so you don't have to trust him, if you're asking for things that you don't have to trust him for, that's probably not going to be answered the way you hope it will. Okay? Pray for provision, pray for pardon. Forgive us our debts. There are at least 5 words in the New Testament for sin. In this particular word debts is one of the words for sin that refers to The idea that in sin we incur a moral and spiritual indebtedness to God that must be paid. There is a a debt that we incur. We charge it on our our spiritual credit card, and the payment is coming due, or it came due, and you know who paid the payment on Calvary? Jesus Christ. He paid your debt and my debt so that we have been forgiven. And so he says, when people hurt you, when people wrong you, when they wound you, he says, forgive us our sin, our debts, as we forgive, as we have forgiven others. Why does he say that? He's not making forgiveness conditional per se, but what he's saying is that when we absorb the debt, when other people wrong us, it helps us to understand what it costs God to forgive us. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. When we understand what it costs God to forgive me of my sin. And I look at what this person over here has done to me. When I forgive their sin, when I let it go, I trust them, that person to God. I forgive them. There may be still on his hook. They got to deal with it themselves. But as far as what I my feelings, if I hold on to the bitterness and anger that often accompanies unforgiveness, you'll be miserable. You'll be miserable. You know, we talk a lot about loving like Jesus here, right? Love like Jesus. Men and women, we don't love like Jesus, or we will truly love like Jesus when we forgive like Jesus. Because people are going to hurt you. People are going to wrong you. You are going to hurt other people. And you need to seek their forgiveness as well. Protection. Here's the final one. Lead us not into temptation. You say, well, wait a minute. God doesn't tempt us. What is he saying? God doesn't tempt us. No, he doesn't. But deliver us from evil. And the structure of this suggests that he could actually be saying, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because there is one who does tempt us. He is Satan. He is the enemy of our soul. He is called the tempter. And he is the one that wants to destroy your life through sin. Lead us not into temptation. And here's the deal. Temptations are all around us. It's just we're we're each tempted by different things, right? I mean, there are things that I'm tempted by that other people wouldn't be, and vice versa. Temptation is all around us. So maybe a way to say this would be something like this. Lord, when I have the inclination to sin, remove the opportunity. And when I have the opportunity to sin, remove the inclination. Lead us not into temptation. When I have the opportunity to sin, remove the inclination. When I have the inclination to sin, remove the opportunity. Don't pray to impress people. Don't pray to impress God. Pray to exalt the Father personally. And then pray in faith for daily needs. The story of the prodigal intrigues me because it is a story of a father's indestructible love for his wayward son. And when the son goes off to the far land, the father continues to look and wait for him to come to his senses, the text tells us. And one day when he finally sees his son coming back, the father lifts the hem of his robe and he shamelessly runs to his son. Jewish men of that era did not lift their robes and run. He ran to him. And before he can get a word out, he throws his arms around him. And he welcomes him home. Men and women, we ne- no one comes to God by getting their act together. We just don't. We come to him the mess that we are in the weakness and the confusion that we have and we ask him to cleanse us and to forgive us and to meet our needs every day. The father longs to hear from you. The father longs to hear from you. He wants you to express your heart. He knows it already, but he longs to hear your heart. Again, D.L. Moody put it this way. He said, I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Because Jesus never taught his disciples to preach, but only to pray.